0: In this continuation of sex, reproduction, and marriage, we will examine marriage as a bond between males and females that has its precedence in animal behaviors called pair bonding. And we'll look at some of the adaptive biosocial foundations of this behavior. We'll also examine marriage rules. How is it that society comes to control reproduction and bonding between males and females? And we'll look at some of the ways in which these adaptive behaviors produce a relatively limited number of combinations on male-female linkages in marriage that suggest that there are certain limits to the human ability to adapt to these potentials for male-female bonding. When we look at marriage arrangements, we find that these are really some interrelated universals that deal not only with the control of sex and sexuality on one hand, but provide the basis for family formation and social groups on the other. In both cases, what we will see is that these patterns of behavior have certain biosocial foundations, aspects of humans' innate needs and capacities, which cultures respond to and adapt to in certain kinds of ways to control and shape them in ways that make them more adaptive in the context of human society. In spite of these universal and biological bases, we will see that there are important cross cultural differences in terms of how marriage is contracted. Our own concepts about boy meets girl fall in love and get married really doesn't reflect what is important in most cultures, and we'll see that there are a variety of social and economic factors that play into the selection of spouses for marriage. These cross-cultural approaches provide us with an important perspective for understanding something about the universals of human behavior a reflection of human nature, as well as an understanding of the variability in human cultures in terms of dealing with these basic aspects of human biology. These cross-cultural perspectives also provide us with an understanding of the causes of some of the typical and atypical patterns of behavior that we find in terms of marriage and <laughs> the human species. Our examination of Pair bonding or marriage in cross-cultural perspective leads us to a somewhat problematic set of results. Can we really say that there is a commonality across culture in terms of marriage? Our own culture tends to prefer the idea that one falls in love with someone. A deep attraction binds two people together who, on their own, decide to make a commitment to one another for life. This idea that we would make our own decisions about marriage seems normal but flies in the face of what happens in most cultures. In most cultures adults would feel that hormones and raging chemicals and romantic love really shouldn't play any role in making the decision about who you're going to spend the rest of your life with and rear your children with. In many cultures we find a pattern of betrothal where parents make the decision often when their children are still very young, you may grow up knowing who your husband or wife is going to be. Some cultures encourage ideas of trial marriage where if a young man and young woman feel that they are attracted to one another, the young woman may go live with her boyfriend with his parents and giving his mother, her future mother-in-law, the opportunity to check her out to see how well she will function within the household. The vast majority of world cultures have practiced something that has been called bride purchase, bride service, and bride price, being mechanisms through which one attains the rights to a woman who will be the mother of one's children and the source of continuity of one's lineage. We'll see that these practices often are highly adaptive and provide important functions in protecting marriages. When we look at the wide variety of ways in which humans contract some bond between man and woman for the purposes of reproduction we see such a diversity that it challenges the notion that there is a underlying set of universal principles can we find commonalities underlying the diversity of practices a number of efforts have been made to define marriage and what they have led to is a realization that while there are typical patterns there are also important exceptions. While we used to define marriage as the union of man and woman, cross-cultural perspectives lead us to conclude it needs to be defined more broadly as the union of two or more people. There may be multiple spouses of one sex, or one sex may assume the gender of another sex and marry someone of the same sex to produce a fictive kind of marriage that has certain kinds of important political or social ramifications. What we see when we look at marriage cross-culturally is that it's primarily concerned with social relations rather than just sex and sexual relations. While these relationships which are expected to be long-term typically come with some expectations about sexual rights, sexual obligations, sexual restrictions. Cultures vary in terms of how tightly or loosely they view these restrictions. Cultures typically see some kind of child-rearing obligation coming from marriage, but there are exceptions in which, for instance, fathers are viewed as having little or no responsibility for their children. Rather, we'll see they may be responsible for taking care of their sister's children rather than their wife's children. But in all cases, we find that marriages engage people in a variety of social rights and responsibilities, and that these rights and responsibilities go beyond the marital pair. In most cultures, grandparents and other members of the family are viewed as having some rights to children. Even in our own American society, grandparents have sued for and won the right to have visitation with their grandchildren. Um, So, all cultures have some notion that when a marriage is contracted, this involves more than two people and their children. It involves a social group that in the process of bringing this couple together also acquires certain kinds of rights and responsibilities with respect to them. When we try to understand the importance of marriage in the human species, looking at animal behavior is useful not only in terms of understanding something about this proclivity for human pair bonding, but the specific factors that lead to it. When we look at patterns of mating in the primates, they are generally not monogamous. Often a harem or multiple sexual partners is typical. So at first glance, there doesn't seem to be a precedent in the animal world. But there are certain animals that do engage in lifelong pair bonding. The chimpanzees and gorillas don't, but other great apes such as the gibbons and samangs do form lifelong pair bonds. This idea that a male and a female of the species will basically stay together, have generation after generation of offspring and spend their lives in contact with one another is a phenomenon that is widely distributed but certainly not universal among animals. So this provides us with an opportunity to understand something about why these bonds are so important in humans, if we can determine when they're important in animals. And indeed, research on animal species indicates that pair bonding occurs when the offspring is dependent upon more than just the mother for survival. If the mother alone can provide food for the offspring, she doesn't need to have males around. However, if the mother is dependent upon assistance, for instance, when a uh, a lactating female fox would be unable to effectively hunt, we find pair bonding occurs, and she and her spouse, so to speak, raise litter after litter together, helping them survive in a situation in which the female would not be able to provide adequate food for her child. So we can look at this as suggesting something about why uh, human marriage is important. The animal model suggests that pair bonding has adaptive functions, that it occurs when the offspring are requiring assistance from others to survive. And in the case of human beings who have the most extreme immaturity of all animals, we can see that the importance of the human marriage right there's really a deep-seated biosocial adaptation to our needs as a species. So pair bonding provides a variety of adaptations to meet human needs. Not only does it provide for a provisioning of the offspring, but it provides a way of reducing sexual competition and aggression. If we pair bond monogamously and agree that it's you and me, babe, and I don't screw around and you don't screw around. Well, this eliminates competition not only between us for sexual access to others, uh, but basically puts others off limits, keeps them from engaging in competition with us. Uh, It accommodates the sexual division of labor that is part of the differential reproductive capacities of the species, and in particular provides protection for females, allowing males to engage in more dangerous activities such as hunting. It also provides a clear understanding of who's responsible for the care of children. Not only mother and father, but in all cultures, other kin have responsibility and rights by virtue of uh, the marriage bond. For instance, uh, in our society, it's relatively easy for an aunt or an uncle to adopt their nieces or nephews. Our legal system facilitates that kind of arrangement reflecting cross-cultural patterns in which specific kin have not only a right but an obligation to care for children if their parents decease. So in an important sense, marriage sets the foundation for a broader set of kinship relationships, the continuity of groups across time through kinship identity, and the allocation and use of social resources that go beyond the immediate family the resources of mother and father to include the kinds of assistance that can be provided by other members of our group. When we look at male-female bonding in the human species we can see that it's not only an important pattern of behavior that reflects something about what's general to animal species. The need for more than one adult to help provision food for the offspring But it's also an important set of adaptations to deal with something specific to the human species. Why is it that we should form male-female bonds rather than, say, females grouping together to share collective uh, concerns about child care? Some specialize in hunting, others in child uh, care. Why doesn't it work that way in human societies and cultures? Why is it so important? to bring males and females together? Well, one thing may be that we need this bonding experience to really keep people committed. The uh, extensive sexual behavior in the bonobos and the chemistry of human bonding suggests that these kinds of experiences generated by sexual behavior between males and females helps create a commitment, not only to them, but to the offspring. We also note that there are certain things that all cultures require in the environment of evolutionary adaptation, our hunter-gatherer heritage, required that men go out and hunt. Why not females? Why not females going out and hunting and leaving their babies behind to be cared for by somebody else? Well, lactation would be part of it. Not only do the engorged breasts restrict some kinds of upper body movement using bows and things like this. Uh, but in advanced stages of lactation, a woman can have her milk dry up if she quits breastfeeding on a continual basis. A hunting trip of five or seven days could leave a woman without milk for her children and, the, and that child in the future. So having the man go hunt and the woman stay at home and breastfeed is an important adaptation for the protection of her lactation capacity and the survival of her child. Furthermore, we note that when men hunt, they do so in groups. They often form hunting partnerships that last a lifetime. And this often involves very complex forms of coordination, signaling, communication through whistling and gestures that allow men to strategically place themselves to kill animals. If females were to come in and out of hunting groups, it wouldn't be as effective as a continual hunting companion. Furthermore, if females did hunt, what motivation would they have to bring back and share their food with other females? They would be intrinsically motivated to hold out some of their hunt, hide it, to give it to their own children. When men hunt for their wives and children, that kind of competition uh, doesn't exist. However, we do need to point out that while this pair bond is the most predominant pattern in human societies, it's not universal. There are some exceptions, including some matrilocal household patterns where the lifelong bond is between brother and sister, not husband and wife. Indeed, the Nyar example of ritual husbands and sexual husbands suggests that there may be a variety of ways in which humans can adapt to this need to have a male-female interaction for reproduction, and perhaps ultimately for the care and survival of children. And in some societies they have been able to do this using maternal bonds and uh, the male kin within the maternal line. However, as we'll see later, these are relatively infrequent patterns and there's specific conditions under which they appear to be successful, suggesting that the male-female linkage and bonding has become predominant in human culture because it addresses more generically the kinds of situations under which humans typically find themselves. When we begin to examine the rules that humans have for bonding, we find that there are both important patterns that persist across cultures as well as patterns that are specific to particular kinds of groups. There has been a long-standing belief among anthropologists that there are certain kinds of so-called natural rules, such as incest avoidance. We typically define incest as the prohibition of sex among siblings and between parents and their children. Do we find analogs in the animal world? Yes, it does appear to be the case that at least mother-son avoidance is widespread in animal species. And there's also a good reason to think that there may be important sibling avoidance patterns. But this may have to do with things such as the out-migration of certain members of the group. If all the young females leave, as is often the case in chimpanzees, well, that helps eliminate brother-sister incest. When we look at humans, clearly there are a variety of incest prohibitions, sexual relations that are thought to be abominable, disgusting, and unacceptable to humans. But are these rules universal or are they culturally specific? Throughout most of anthropology's history, there has been a general consensus that the incest taboo defined as prohibition on sex among parents, children, and siblings of the same family, descendants, blood relatives, is a universal. Some people have started to call this into question but we'll see that perhaps the reasons for doing so are misunderstandings rather than an actual reality. Why do human cultures, at least widely, if not universally, endorse an incest taboo? Well, the famous psychologist Sigmund Freud placed this in the broader context of the Oedipal and Electra complex and concluded that while the young child desired to have sex with the opposite sex parent little boys wanting to have sex with their mothers little girls wanting to have sex with their fathers Freud thought that they repressed these desires out of fear of retribution from the same sex parent while this may be true it doesn't explain sibling incest avoidance nor does it explain why parents would avoid their own children Malinowski expanded on Freud's notions, suggesting that if sex were to occur between parents and children, or among siblings, it would contribute to confusion about roles in the family and ultimately be a destructive influence on the family, bringing sexual competition into the most important domains of socialization and human life. This idea that sex within the family would be disrupted disruptive was expanded by a variety of theories that we can call cooperation theories that suggest that there are certain political and economic advantages to marrying outside of your family it increases your linkages to others provides the opportunity for alliances increases the number of people who are concerned about you and your well-being after all say if your sister is my wife and lives with me you're not likely to want to attack my group. You might kill your sister or your nieces and nephews. So there are a variety of reasons in which outmarriage produces stronger social bonds and ultimately protections for people in society. There probably are also biological bases for the incest avoidance. One line of thinking that has led to this kind of theorizing has to do with certain kinds of phenomena found cross-culturally. One a phenomenon known as the Chinese child bride practiced in uh, pre-modern China uh, occurred when a very poor family couldn't take care of all their children and they would give one of their daughters to a richer family to be the wife for one of the sons. These kinds of arrangements were seldom successful Extramarital affairs and marital discord were typical in these kinds of marriages. A similar kind of avoidance of people that you were reared with has been noted in studies of the Israeli kibitzims, the collective child care facilities that were developed so that mothers could go work. And what was discovered was that children reared together in the same kibitzim hardly ever got married. There seemed to be a preference for new and different people rather than the people you grew up with. This may reflect an underlying selective force in human biology that leads us to avoid inbreeding, the sexual relations among closely related genetic individuals. This biosocial adaptation may help us avoid certain kinds of Uh, genetic defects, because while all of us do have genetic defects, most of those genes are recessive and not manifested. However, if two closely related people have sex and produce an offspring, they are likely to have the same recessive genes and this could be a dominant gene in their offspring. So there are cross-cultural studies that show that uh, close patterns of sexual relations among kin Uh, lead to higher levels of genetic defects and problems. So while there may be a variety of social and psychological reasons why the incest taboo is adaptive, it may have its ultimate roots in human biology and basically a selection across evolutionary time for people who just had the tendency to avoid having sex with their own offspring. Clearly these tendencies can be expanded to the brother and sister, and the childhood familiarity theory suggests that we are predisposed to view people that we grow up with as being unacceptable sexual partners. There are some notable exceptions to the uh, incest taboo. Royalty have often allowed brother-sister marriage, with the explicit notion that this reduces competition for succession with brother and sister married then there's only one line of people who can contend for the throne there's also practices that have occurred in other parts of the world and the suggestion is that when the family is forced to split up if they continue to outmarry, because they no longer have enough land to support the family on in marriage of brothers and sisters can help reduce the number of descendants and the need to split small plots of land the primary reason why there may be exceptions to the incest taboo has more to do with concepts of kin. For instance, if you were to ask a young woman, do you think it's okay to marry your father or your brother? In our society, she's likely to say no. But in societies where the term father is used to refer not only to one's biological father, but to one's uh, uncles. Uh, in societies where the term brother extends to all of one's cousins. The idea of marrying one's father or one's brother may mean something very different than it does to us. This may still be within what we would conceptualize as incestuous or inappropriate relations, but it's not the same kind of thing as a daughter-father or a daughter-brother marriage in our own culture. So some of these results that purport to refute the incest taboo may have really failed to take into consideration what people really mean by these terms. And we will examine this in the next lecture on kinship. What we do find in cultures around the world is two general kinds of rules about marriage. These rules are called exogamy and endogamy. Exogamy says you must marry outside of some group of people. Endogamy says you must marry within some group. Both principles typically apply. In our own society, in addition to the classic incest taboo, we have a variety of prohibitions on cousin marriages. Although not all states prohibit cousin marriages, and different kinds of cousin marriages may be legal or illegal depending on what state you are in. In many cultures, there's also beliefs that one must marry outside of one's broader kin group, defined as a lineage or a clan or even a village. But cultures generally have a belief that you must marry someone who is at a sufficient distance from you. Cultures also tend to have rules about marrying within specific groups. One may be expected to marry within one's race or one's religion or be expected to marry into a specific village or a specific clan. Or as we'll see later, one may be expected to marry specific cross cousins or parallel cousins. So cultures tend to have both sets of rules, outside of one group but within some other. When we look at the social regulation of marriage, one of the things that is an important contrast to what is typical in North America is that in most societies, marriage is not left up to the individual. In most pre-modern cultures, parents and other kin made the decision about who your spouse was going to be. These decisions were generally made in light of notions of in-group, uh, intergroup obligations, the formation of alliances, etc. Uh, and often marriage was a kind of exchange that engaged some kind of Transfer of woman from one group to another and vice versa, a kind of balance, or else, as we'll see in many cases, a compensation paid for women. Now, for you to think of someone picking your spouse, mom picking that perfect girl for you or perfect boy, probably doesn't sit very easily with you. You probably have some horrific idea about what kind of person they might pick. You wouldn't accept an arranged marriage. But in many cultures, arranged marriage was considered to be normal, and it was often viewed as preferable. While we tend to view our own patterns of marriage as being preferable, people in other cultures have found them to be uh, somehow very offensive. For instance, a woman who wants to get married may be rejected time after time. Uh, She may have to you know, put her body on the line or in bed night after night to convince one guy or another that she's good enough. Uh, People in other cultures would view this as humiliating to women. Where arranged marriages are the norm, women are never rejected, at least not to their face. They don't have to go out on the meat market and expose themselves to all kinds of risk. So while our culture prefers this individual decision and may have some kind of excitement or titillation about going out and meeting somebody new and strange. In many other cultures, people find some sense of assurance that they're going to be taken care of by their parents or by the marriage broker, that the person that they end up marrying may, will be the right person for them. And while they may not love this person to start with, uh, the idea is that love is something that grows out of a good relationship and that romantic love and lust is not the basis on which people ought to make lifelong decisions about their partners and who cares for their offspring. While Americans tend to reject the notion that we have any regulations of marriage, the social scientists tell us otherwise. We tend to have pretty strict expectations about age similarity. If someone marries someone 20 years younger than them, or 30 years older than them, we think that's a little strange. Our society also has expectations about marriage that involve marrying people of similar social classes. Indeed, most marriages are of people to similar age and socioeconomic standing. However, there are important male-female differences. What do you think is more likely? that a man marries a woman thirty years older than him or that a woman marries a man thirty years older the latter pattern is what's more likely to happen and indeed the same holds for class women are more likely to marry up in class and find this acceptable men are not as likely to be able to marry up and of course this reflects a general mating strategy in which older men are preferred by women in general and men prefer younger fertile nubile and attractive females. In addition to these rules on marriage what we find is that in most societies there is some kind of exchange that is expected to occur between groups in the context of marriage. In a very real sense this occurs in other animal species as well an exchange of genetic material between groups in most primate species young males leave or, or are driven out by the dominant alpha males. Uh, a rare occurrence occurring among the chimpanzees uh, is that females leave and go to other groups allowing the males to remain there and form their alliances and perpetuate the, the political structure of the group. However in virtually all primate groups we find that female kin play an important role in forming the core of the group. And it may be not only sisters, but mothers and daughters that can ultimately come to be the dominant force in the group and may actually play a role in deciding who gets to come in and be the alpha male. But what we find in the chimpanzees is something that uh, presages what is the predominant pattern in human groups. One where females leave the group and join other groups, and males related by descent stay together. And these patterns play an important role in one of the most important social and economic aspects of marriage exchange, that referred to as bride wealth. What bride wealth and dowry both refer to is the exchange of wealth and value between groups in the context of marriage practices. And what we find extremely widespread around the world, perhaps as much as two-thirds or more of world cultures, is that some kind of bride service or bride price is paid to the wife's kin. In the context of marriage, a man is required to give some considerable amount of wealth to his wife's kin. Why engage in these patterns of behavior? when we examine it from a social point of view what we see is that there's important adaptations that are achieved by these practices and while we might see them as being a kind of buying of a wife or selling of a daughter it really is something far more important and far more complex than that in societies where bride wealth is the norm this is typically viewed as a recognition of the value of a woman and a compensation for her loss to the group. They would explicitly feel that we have raised up a good woman, she knows how to work, she can you know tend to the gardens, take care of the pigs, prepare your food, and she can rear children for you. This is a very valuable asset. and We don't give that away. If you want our daughter to be your wife and raise your children, We're going to have to receive something for it. Curiously these kinds of arrangements protect marriages because husbands are unlikely to abuse a woman if she can leave if she's abused and he loses his bride price. Women who may thickly decide that they want to leave their husband would also be returned by their family who says we've made an arrangement here you have an obligation and plus we can't give back the bride price We used it to get your brother a wife. So while it may be viewed as a kind of cavalier attitude about women, in most cultures, this is viewed as having important protections for the woman in her new family, and even more so, being an explicit recognition of the value of women. People where bride price has been the norm might look at our own practices as devaluing women, We don't ask for a bride price. Does that mean that our sisters and daughters are worthless? That we don't want anything at all for everything that's been put into their upbringing? Clearly, there are important economic investments made in all children. And when females leave their groups to join other groups, most cultures have considered it to be important that they be compensated for that loss of a very significant contributor to the economy. Because in most of these cultures, Women are engaged in farming and taking care of uh, domestic animals, and they contribute to the wealth of their husband's group. Dowry, on the other hand, where goods are transferred from the wife's family to the husband's family, does in fact reflect cultures that have lower value placed upon women, while the dowry may be viewed as a compensation for the loss of an inheritance and a kind of economic security for the woman, it's often often viewed as being payment for accepting a liability in a culture where a woman has no function other than domestic activities and rearing children. And who's going to take care of her once her productive days are over? So while dowry is a relatively rare occurrence, um, perhaps only 10 20% of world cultures having engaged in this, Uh, it is thought to reflect a particular kind of relationship between groups, one in which wife-givers are subordinated to wife-receivers. If powerful groups in society can decide to take their wives from any of the subordinated groups, which group would they pick? The idea here is that the group that gives the most to them. So we find in cultures where dowry has been practiced, that there is often a history of an outside group coming in and dominating the local group, such as the Indo-Europeans invading the Dravidian-speaking peoples of India. Who do these warrior conquerors take for their wives? Anybody they want. Who do they choose? Whoever can pay the best price. To wrap up this lecture, we'll look at a variety of marriage partner combinations and look at some of the ways in which human cultures have come to create stable dynamics of males and females for purposes of procreation and the rearing of children. We'll look at monogamy, one man and one woman, which you are most familiar with, as well as polygamy, where you have multiple spouses of one sex. We'll primarily look at polygyny, where a man has several wives, but also consider polyandry where a woman may have more than one husband. We'll also briefly address the concept of group marriages and look at why, why these really don't occur, what some of the problems might be and why some misperceptions may lead to the conclusion that there are group marriages. We'll also briefly wrap up with the concept of same-sex marriages and look at some of the patterns that are found cross-culturally, illustrating their social rather than sexual nature in some cases. Monogamy, one man, one woman, is represented in this diagram here. The man, the triangle, the woman, the circle, linked, the equal sign, meaning marriage, and their son and daughter. This is the most prevalent form of marriage worldwide, although in many cultures it has not been the preferred form. Monogamy may also take the form of serial monogamy, where a series of monogamous relationships produces separate family systems. With the current divorce rate, serial monogamy has come to be a dominant pattern in our society. (coughs) Polygyny, where a man has two or more wives, has been the preferred form of marriage in two-thirds of world cultures, at least preferred by men, but also in many cultures also preferred by women. We see here in this diagram the man, the white triangle, married to two different women, each of whom have his children. This form of marriage arrangement is something that has been studied extensively in cross-cultural perspective with an effort to understand when do these kinds of relationships occur as a preferred or perhaps even dominant form in some cultures. One of the things that is clear is that there's a sex-racial imbalance. Polygyny can only occur when there are more marriageable females than males. This may be an actual sex racial imbalance, where men are decimated by warfare or attacks by outsiders, or it may be a culturally induced sex racial imbalance. For instance, in some cultures, females are viewed as being marriageable when they're 11, 12, 13 years old. But men aren't viewed as being of marriageable age until they've completed military service, they've established their herds, they've built a house, they may be 30 years old. So an artificial sex ratio imbalance may allow for polygyny to occur. In general, we find that polygyny occurs not only with a sex ratio imbalance, but where women have important contributions to productivity. For instance, where women are farmers, or as happened in the case of many Native American groups when they came into contact with Europeans, the processing of animal pelts for fur, which was a woman's job, made polygyny a desirable and economically beneficial arrangement where a man could become rich and powerful by marrying many women who could process many pelts and provide an important source of income through trade. In general, we find that Polygyny is the prerogative of powerful men. Even in societies where polygyny may be touted as the preferred form of marriage, most men are monogamous in their marriage. And the underlying reason would be they can't afford to have more wives. So there are not only economic costs involved, but also economic motivations. And cultures differ in the extent to which they recognize and act upon these as we'll see later in the context of kinship forms that there are a variety of reasons why polygyny may be practiced that include keeping the family together and we'll examine this in the context of extended family systems. Polygyny today persists around the world. In many cases it's um, sort of under the radar where men may have both a wife and a mistress. Uh, It persists in many parts of Africa where traditionally powerful men could acquire wives and it even persists in the United States where breakaway Mormon groups who defy the ban on polygyny by the uh, church uh, persist with these ancient patterns of multiple marriages, often in isolated communities that attempt to escape the scrutiny of law enforcement officials. When you look at the roots of Mormonism, you will find that some of the very same factors Uh, led to polygyny. Many men were killed uh, as Mormons were attacked by outsiders, making polygyny an adaptive adaptation. Uh, And Indeed, the Mormons today are increasingly pointing out that there are important Christian precedents for polygyny, that this was an accepted practice in the Judeo-Christian past. Polyandry, where a woman has two or more husbands, is a very rare form of uh, marriage practice. It probably is permitted in less than 5% of world cultures, and even in those cultures, it's not the dominant pattern. What we find is that polyandry is typically what's called fraternal polyandry, where a woman marries several brothers, and she is the spouse for all of them. Why would such a practice occur? Some have proposed that it is a reflection of a lack of females, and may be an adaptation to practices of female infanticide. This may be possible, but it doesn't appear to be the typical case. What appears to be the typical case is that polyandry occurs where there is a concern about preservation of family resources, particularly keeping land within the family. Polyandry is a practice that allows for the reduction of the intergenerational growth of the family system. (laughs) For instance, on the right here, we have a polyandrous marriage, where three sons of a man and woman all marry the same woman. And we see here that this woman has three children. Well, what would happen if all of these sons married their own wives? well they could easily produce a situation where you would have twice as many offspring and it could lead to the need to split up the farm to the point where it could no longer support anybody and the family would essentially have to send some of the sons off to work elsewhere leading to a disruption of the family system. Group marriages are often thought about and reported But what we find when we actually look at these practices is that these experiments have generally been failures. If we have situations in which many men are married to many women and vice versa, it doesn't seem to work out well. It tends to produce conflicts and problems. There is something about human nature and human psychology that doesn't lead us to be easily disposed to these kinds of relations. It may reflect something about our own nature where pair bonding is an important part of how we adapt to adult life. As we'll see when we look at some of these other (coughs) forms of marriage, they're not really often what we call group marriage. For instance, in some cases, when we find a so-called group marriage, it's really an extension of polyandry, where a group of brothers have more than one wife, and the existing ties among brothers help (coughs) ameliorate conflicts. We also find that there's practices of wife sharing, for instance, among the Eskimo. But in these cases, these wife sharing practices really aren't group marriages. Uh, They're normally uh, sharings that are done among hunting partners, and it may often be with the expectation that if the man dies, his hunting partner will take over and take care of his wife and uh, children. It's also a practice of sexual convenience where men who may be away from their wives for extended periods of time have the opportunity for sexual gratification but in these cases we really don't find a context in which all these men and all these women really consider themselves to be married sometimes ideas of group marriage reflect other kinds of intergroup or intragroup relations once again polygyny might be viewed as family preservation in the bible you can read about Leverett, where a man has a second wife but what he does is he marries his brother's widow when his brother dies and not only takes responsibility for this widow but for her and his brother's children in essence his uh, nieces and nephews another form of intergroup marriage that may reflect a kind of group marriage can be sororate or sororal polygyny where a woman will marry the man that her sister is married to This may be what we will call a classificatory sister rather than an actual sister. And this typically happens when the woman dies. Who's going to take care of these children? A new wife is needed. Or if the woman is infertile and doesn't produce children, then her sister may be viewed as uh, fulfilling her group's contract to provide someone who will produce children for this man's lineage. A variety of forms of intergroup relations are produced through specific patterns of marriage that can create important group ties. Around the world, we find not cousin marriage avoidance, but actual practices where marrying one's cousin is a preferred form of marriage. Two ways of viewing cross-cultural patterns of cousin marriage are what we call cross-cousin marriages and parallel-cousin marriages. In the case of cross-cousin marriages, what we find are practices in which a shift from sex, from one's mother a female to her brother a male, determines who you marry, or from father's, sister's children. Parallel-cousin marriages have the same sex in the linkage. Father's, brother's children, or mother's, sister's children, are preferred marriage partners. (coughs) These patterns of marriage create situations (coughs) in which one marry someone who is closely linked to the family already and helps keep the family from spreading out generation after generation. It reduces in-laws and reduces cousins, nieces and nephews and helps create a more compact integrated group across generations. Same sex marriages are a phenomenon that has got increasing press in recent years and has raised questions about whether or not these are normal. When we begin to ask this question, we have to ask whether or not same-sex marriages fulfill the concept or the definition of marriage. Clearly, the broader definitions about unions between people have to be uh, considered rather than just a relationship between a man and a woman. But this is necessary to accommodate polygyny and polyandry as well. These kinds of same-sex marriages may or may not fulfill other kinds of concepts of marriage such as uh, the production of children, although in some cases they do, the continuity across generation, the sharing of resources, etc. So while we have to accept that some notion of same-sex marriages is accepted in cultures around the world, we can also note that they're not necessarily the same kinds of relations that we think of in terms of marriages. Yet, in many cases, they are and do have similar intents. In many cases, these may be kinds of fictive marriages that have certain social or economic or political political gains. And in some cases, we find that these so-called marriages don't involve sex, but are there for certain kinds of social purposes. For instance, in some cultures, women may be able to become husbands, and take another woman as a wife this is not a sexual relation but a relationship in which this wife this new wife is expected to get pregnant by somebody else and to bear a child that then belongs to the woman who took the role of a husband these kinds of practices occur where a woman having a descendant is necessary for her receiving an inheritance or having certain rights in society There are also same-sex marriages that are called pathic marriages, and these are relationships in which a male undergoes a gender role change in order to take on the role of a woman. In many cases these pathic marriages involve mentorship, a kind of intergenerational relationship between an older man and a younger man. These provide certain kinds of economic and political benefits, connections with others in society. In many cultures these pathic marriages are associated with military service and military training and they may just be temporary relations for a period of time during which these two men are in this military situation and in which the younger man gets certain kinds of social benefits by having this older husband and the older man gets certain kinds of sexual benefits by having this younger so-called wife. When we look at marriage patterns cross-culturally, what we see is that culture always regulates reproduction. Whatever may be human's natural sexuality, there are important ways in which culture attempts to constrain that. Nonetheless, certain adaptive features, male preference for younger females, female preference for older males, may still prevail in spite of culture. What we do find in the context of marriage is a adaptation that is part of our animal heritage, a kind of pair bonding that has a variety of adaptive advantages in the human species just as it has in other species. This bonding may not only provide for enhanced protection of women and their offspring but can provide a variety of other benefits that we recognize in the concepts of romantic love, etc. When we look at human bonding patterns we find that we have a variety of different kind of mating patterns. And while some of these mating patterns may seem alien and even abhorrent to us, when we examine them in the context of the societies where they occur, we typically find that they are very adaptive. For instance, polygyny, while often misconstrued as just a male sexual gratification, can also be understood as a practice that helps preserve families. For instance, where a man dies, and leaves no one to care for his children, his brother has the responsibility of taking care of his children, and taking care of the wife comes along with the package. So when we try to understand marriages across cultural phenomena, we have to recognize that our own culture's emphasis on romantic ties and attachment and individual decisions don't conform with what people in most cultures consider to be the most important reasons to get married. These have to do with forming important social and economic alliances between groups.